So tonight's text is short. It's only three verses. So if you have Bibles, you can open them to Hebrews 13, 1 through 3. Give you just a second. And if you don't, I'll read it here. Um, and that's okay too. So hear the word of God. It says, Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entered angels unawares. Sorry, some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. So we've gone through this whole journey of Hebrews, and if you Remember, up until chapters 12 and 13, we actually didn't get a lot of like actionable commands of how to live as Christians. We received a lot of information and doctrine that was focused specifically on first century Jews about the new covenant, who Jesus was, how he was more superior and more supreme than anything in the old covenant, how he, why he is the Messiah. Then we shifted a little bit in chapter 12, and we, we saw some exhortations encouraging us to finish the race strong. We remember all that running and race analogy that we spoke about, to stand firm in adversity, that general encouragement for us. And so now we get to chapter 13, which is kind of the practical application, specifically exhortations on how we're to relate to each other. So how are we supposed to care for one another? And as I was studying for this, one of the commentators that I read said that the pattern we see in this letter was pretty typical for first century letters. You would get a bunch of doctrine and then duty. And so letters were formatted. Here's all kind of the theological information you need to have. Now that you have that, here's what you go do with that. Here's how you go action that. So now we're in duty portion. And what we're going to look at is our duties of how they relate to others. And today, specifically, we're going to look at brotherly love, hospitality, and then kindness to those who are in prison or who are being mistreated. So verse one is just four words. It says, let brotherly love continue. And this shouldn't come as any surprise as anybody that has spent time here that or listening to what we have to say, that the cornerstone of our faith is one of love and loving one another. God loves us and therefore we love each other. And we know that from 1 John 4, 7 through 12. Beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. So, what are we called to do? Yeah, love one another, especially each other, especially each other within the community of the brothers and sisters who are in Jesus. What, what we are called here specifically is brotherly love. The NASB, the New American Standard Bible, which is a kind of a slightly more word-for-word -word translation than the ESV, translates this verse as, let the love of the brethren continue. And the Greek word for love is? Brotherly love is? No, no. The Greek word for brotherly love is? Philadelphia. Exactly. Which means brotherly love. Literally, I broke down the words. Literally what it means is having a tender affection for one of the same womb. Now, with the exception of two people sitting at that table over there, none of us have shared the same womb. You guys are the only twins we have in the room. Is there anybody else here a twin that doesn't have a twin with them? No. So we only have... You're a twin? Triplet, of course. Okay, so you could have brotherly love, but they're, not here. but they're not here. 
So we have one of three, and then we have twins that were here that shared the same womb. But none of the rest of us have shared a womb with each other. So how are we supposed to have this affection for each other? How are we supposed to have this tender affection for someone who has shared the same womb? Well, what he's talking about is obviously the spiritual womb, not just the physical womb. But the example is to show that same level of love and affection that that twins or people that have shared that same space would have. Because we are all actually spiritual brothers and sisters. We must love each other because because we're actual brothers and sisters, our attitudes within our Christian community should be different with each other. Paul says this in Galatians 3.28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And what his letter to the, uh, to the Galatians reminds us is that we're no longer defined by what we were. That the only defining thing about us is who we are in Jesus. It, whether we're a Jew or we were a Greek or a man or a woman, it doesn't actually matter. All of these labels that we see culturally now, they don't matter one bit. Whatever the, the stuff people want to put behind their names doesn't matter. That's not what should be defining you. What defines you is who you are in God, which then unites you within God's people and makes you brothers and sisters. Romans 12.10, love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Paul's point in those, those verses and the author's point here is that we have a duty and responsibility for each other. We are to care for another, one another above ourselves. We are to put each other's needs ahead of our own needs. We are to love each other. All of our attitudes one another, even if we have differences, even if we have to enact consequences, are always supposed to be from a place of love. Love doesn't mean free reign to do whatever you want. Love means that we care for people within appropriate boundaries, we hold them accountable for where they need to be held accountable, and we prop them up elsewhere. And what rings true with me, and I think I've said it here, I know I've said it at the other places, is that united unbelievers are stronger than disunited believers. We should always stand firm on primary things. There are primary things in our lives that we do not bend from. And then there's a whole bunch of other secondary stuff that we argue that shouldn't be points of division from, with us, right? So there can be ways to be unified with people that have disagreements with us within the body of Christ as long as they're not primary things like the authority of Scripture and who God is and what sin is and those things. Everything else, like baptizing babies. Now, we all know it's right and true and the perfect thing to baptize babies, obviously. And some of my friends disagree with me, and they're wrong, obviously. <laughs> but that doesn't mean that I'm outside communion with them, even though they're absolutely horrendously wrong. <laughs> I have a friend planning a church in Illinois that does not believe that we should baptize babies at all, and he's wrong. But we love each other, and we talk almost every single day. But the point is that's a secondary issue, right? That's not a splitting issue, because foundationally, other than where he's wrong about baptizing babies... He believes in God, he believes in the Bible's authority, the, the inerrancy of Scripture, and he's an Orthodox Christian. We are splitting hairs about some theological differences that don't change other things. So this is where it comes about brotherly love and affection, this need to be unified together as a body, to see ourselves primarily as citizens of Christ's kingdom before we see ourselves as citizens of the United States of America or what other labels that you want to apply to yourself. This actually helps solve a lot of the problems that are going on with us culturally too, right? People want to be defined by all these other things and they get really mad if you don't participate in what they want to be defined by and tell you that you hate them because of that. If you become united within the body of Christ, none of those other labels actually matter. So, verse 2. 
Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So not only are we to love each other and put our love for our brothers and sisters before our own desires, but we also have to show hospitality to strangers. So who are strangers? Man, it got really quiet. You didn't know it was like a question and answer part. Who's a stranger? Anybody. anybody we don't know. They could be a believer. They could be an unbeliever. These are people that we just were, we don't know. Sarah, you were a stranger here until about 20 minutes ago. Now you're not a stranger anymore. But these are people that we don't have established relationships with. And so hospitality was this huge deal for Jews in the first century. And it should actually be highly important for us. Even looking at this house. So this is an older house. Where's the living room that we're standing in right now? It's at the front of the house. It's actually, it's intentional. It's an inviting place with the front windows where people passing by can see whether it's occupied. By a new house now, where's the main living space? set back in the back of the house. There's a psychology to this because we're not as community-orientated people as people were 40, 50, 60, 100 years ago. So we take our living space and we put it more private. We put it farther back so people on the street can't see. Whereas before text message and cell phones and fax machines, people would literally just go pop by. And you could see if the thighs were having dinner because you could walk by their house and look in and see through the window or see if they were spending time in the living area. So this idea of hospitality is one that is woven into our culture. I think it's getting pushed out a little bit, but you know us, we like, we like being hospitable, so it's not being pushed out here. But in the first century, this would have been opening up somewhere to stay or providing a place to stay for at least a night or more. This hospitality wasn't just like, hey, come over for a couple hours. It was, how do we care for you? Stay in our home, eat our food. Like, how do I care for you? It was a physical act of love for the stranger. But the author references something else in that really short text that the Jews would have been easily aware of. And it was how Abraham, right after his circumcision, had hosted three strangers who were actually angels. That's where that part of the text where it says, thereby some have entertained angels unawares. So if you're not familiar with the story, Abraham has been commanded by God to circumcise himself. There were not surgical instruments the thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago when Abraham did this. So he used a sharp rock. The kids are wide-eyed and laughing. Can you imagine that? He used a very sharp rock. There was probably no antiseptic. No bandaging, maybe a leaf of some sort. This probably did not feel particularly great. And there are some who say that the third day of healing is like the worst day of healing when you're going through recovery. So not only is Abraham healing from a part of his body, that sharp rocks probably shouldn't be anywhere near. Um, he, he's hurting, right? And he doesn't have any of the benefit of things like modern day medicine or pain medication or even ice. And what happens? Three strangers walk by his tent. So what does he do? He rushes out to greet them. <laughs> and that's what we see in Genesis 18, 1 through 8. It, it's a little bit of a longer passage, but bear with me. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of, of Mamre, and he sat down to the door of his tent in the heat of the day. So not only did he just circumcise himself with a very sharp rock three days prior, but he's sitting in the tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. 
So they said, do as you've said. And Abraham quickly went into the tent and to Sarah and said, quick, three seahs of fine flour, kneaded and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to the young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Here's Abraham in incredible pain, like legitimate physical pain. And he responds to strangers by running to them. And he responds to strangers by running to them and telling them what is he in relation to them? Their, their servant. He's their servant. How many people now, and like some guy's walking down the front of your house, so you're like, hey, excuse me, sir, I'm your servant. Can I give you water, wash your feet? I think if you offer strangers to wash their feet on the street, they, they might be a little bit shocked. But you call 911, right, potentially. But the point is bigger, right? People don't look at themselves. We don't look at ourselves as being in service of others, being a servant to others. But Abraham understands how important it is to be hospitable, hospitable to these people because he leaves by running to them. There's an urgency. Not only is he in pain, it's the hot part of the day, and he runs to them. Well, the real, the real laugh is that they're actually not human at all. They're angels. They're sent by God. And so Abraham is actually credited for his hospitality, promised a son, even though Sarah was long past uh, birthing age, and promised a mighty nation from his offspring. But the catch is that Abraham didn't entertain these people because he expected to get anything from them. He did it because he knew as a servant that that was where his heart was supposed to be. It was not just his duty, but he wanted to do it. It wasn't an obligation like, oh, i got to go take care of these people. It's so hot outside. He ran to them because he wanted to be in service of them. He was compelled to do it. And so this still stands for us. And one of the ways that we demonstrate our love is in how we love the stranger, whether they're a believer or not. We're supposed to engage them kindly. Um, and while we may not just open our home to anybody walking by, sometimes that's legitimately not safe. We don't, that doesn't absolve us for the need in acting kind to a stranger. I don't know why this story just, just popped in my head. I wasn't always a particularly kind human being. Like 10 years ago, I was grumpy. I was mad. I had a pretty big temper. And I walked through the mall at Park Meadows, like something in the middle of the day to pick something up. And this woman was trying to sell me sunglasses while I was wearing my prescription glasses, like one of those little carts in the center. And I totally just mouthed off at her. I was really nasty. Just snarky as, as all could be. Like something along the lines of, does it look like I need a pair of your sunglasses while I'm wearing my prescription glasses? Like just totally a jerk. And I got about halfway down the mall before I turned back and went back and apologized to her. This was before I was a Christian. And then she hugged me and she gave me the nicest. She said, are you, are you having a bad day? I was like, I'm having a really bad year. And she's like, do you need a hug? And I was like, I would really love a hug. And just this, this stranger woman embraced me from kindness in her heart, even though I had been a ginormous jerk to her. That's the kindness and love we're supposed to have for strangers. She didn't know me. I had been totally rude to her. And she embraced me in an act of kindness. And I doubt that woman has any memory of doing that for me 10 years later. But it stuck in my head. She probably got yelled at by a bunch of jerky people in a mall. And she was just probably trying to make minimum wage and sell some sunglasses because it was the job she happened to have. So our acts of kindness don't go unnoticed. And that's the reason last week for you guys were here, and we have these for those of you who weren't, we made goodie bags for homeless. So before you leave, everyone grab a couple. The idea is you keep them in your car. They've got water, Gatorade, um, some fruit snacks, warm socks, and a message of encouragement. And the messages were written by hand by people here. 
Because one of the things that's challenging when you're homeless is it's that you've lost all relationships. We, I, I know we said this last week, but it's worth repeating. Everybody here in this room, if you lost everything, you probably have family or friends you can go to. There's somebody in your network. It could be church, it could be a best friend, it could be family, it could be a parent where they could take you in. The people who are homeless now are devoid of relationship. Now, there's other, we all know that there's uh, mental health things and all kinds of it. There's, but when you're left with no other choice, that means you've burned out all the, you've burned every bridge or you didn't have any, any to begin with. And so part of what we, we want to give is a message of encouragement as well. So I want people to take those. And then when we run out of these bags, we'll do it all again. Because they're a great way to be able to engage people and share love to the stranger. Um, that's why our church network does a ton with refugee families. We do an amazing amount. We brought a lot of refugees over and they stay with members of our church. And these are not necessarily people that believe what we believe. A lot of times these are people that believe things that are dramatically different than what we believe. In some parts of the world, hostile to what we believe. And of course the church network is, is trying to be smart about safety and things like that. Of course that's a top priority. But when we can flush out the safety piece of those, then what we have this ability to do is be loving to the stranger in a really meaningful, impactful way. I mean, can you really imagine if you came to the America, not like coming to America, though that was a funny movie, um, but if you came to America and you didn't know the language, you didn't know the culture, and where you're from, people are particularly hostile to you. There's an, a way for us to love the stranger there too. This is a way we get to live our faith in action, is how we care and love for people, how we treat people. All right, last verse, verse three. Remember those who are in prison as though you were in prison with them and, and those who are mistreated since you are also in the body. So we've talked about here before the difference between sympathy and empathy and, and why empathy in its current kind of cultural context is bad, but sympathy is really good. And we can talk about that later if you haven't heard, um, heard kind of that breakdown. Kristen and I both can talk to you about it. But sympathy, this idea of feeling pity for someone and their misfortune is actually something we're called to do. This isn't feeling sorry for people. Pity is a word that's kind of misrepresented. This is, oh, look how, this is not, look how terrible it is for them. And then you get to virtue signal and go, oh, just so bad. That's not what this is. What this is about loving people in their misfortune. Sorry, I can't not laugh with Michael laughing. But look at prison ministry within Christian circles. Prison ministry has been a huge part of Christian evangelism. And critics have come back and say, well, you see, it's just a target-rich audience there, which there really is, actually, but for different reasons than our critics say. This, oh, see, they're going to go manipulate these people in prison and bring them to Jesus. Grace. Hey, Grace, please be nice, loving and kind. Um, <laughs> But think, think about our, correctional, our correction institutions. Does the American prison system really correct anything? Not even a little bit. Super broken. And then, even though people serve time in corrections, we kick them out with a giant scarlet letter on them and we don't employ them or give them second chances because as a culture, we don't believe in forgiveness. And so when you look at how you can reach people in prison, it is a target-rich environment, but for different reasons, because what we're really reaching people at is usually at the lowest of the low. They've also run out of all options. Now, there are some horrendously evil people, and there are some people that need to be locked up for a very, very, very long time. But if we're really Christians, we believe in forgiveness and repentance, and we do believe that people can change, but we believe they can change through the Holy Spirit. And so that's where an opportunity comes from when we're doing evangelism within the prison world is these are people that are probably at the very bottom of their depra depravity. Like they've literally hit rock bottom. And there are a lot of really wonderful stories of people who have turned their lives around 
who've been in the prison system. I read about one guy, his name was Casey Diaz. He was a Latino gangbanger and gang leader in the 90s in LA. He was incarcerated as one of the most dangerous and violent criminals in California. He was a bad dude. But he came to Christ in incarceration and his whole life changed. His heart changed and now he knows Christ. He's a pastor, he's out of prison, he's married with three kids and he has a huge ministry that reaches out to people in similar situations. And none of us have been in prison, I'm assuming. But we've all been in spiritual prison. We've all been in a place where our idols or our loves or the materialism of the age or our sins or our lust or whatever the particular flavor it is for each and everybody's kind of the darker part of their heart. We've all been stuck in a spiritual prison before. So even if you haven't been in physical prison, we can identify with people and sympathize with people because we've all been in a spiritual jail. Think about some of the nights that you've been most guilt-ridden in your life and, and I think you'll probably find that that's the same thing. But verse 3 tells us not just to remember people in prison, it also says those who are mistreated because they're also in the body. Because remember that body, like the body of Christ, like Galatians said, is what unites us. We're no longer defined by felon or Jew or Greek or American or color of our skin or any of these things. We're not defined by any of that. We're defined by who we are in Jesus. And so caring for the mistreated and those in prison is another way for us to show love. It's a, another way for us to reach out to people that actually need our help. Because if the church gives up on people, that's pretty bad. We're not supposed to be the place that actually gives up on anybody. That doesn't mean there's not consequences. It doesn't mean it's a free reign to do whatever you want and act however you want. Because there are expectations on people who claim to be part of the body and what their behavior should be. Not in a legalistic sense. I think you guys know what I mean. But... What it does mean is that we have this amazing opportunity to reach out to other broken people with our brokenness and sympathize with them and love them in action. So biblical sympathy, biblical pity isn't virtue signaling, isn't feeling bad. It's actually offering to help. I love you. I care about you. What can I do for you? You need some money because you, you, you can't pay for, I mean, rent. I mean, this is my argument about why if, if you actually had the church doing the things the church needed to do. I think I've told you this before. Joe Rogan, I like sometimes listen to Rogan. He's like, I just wish there was an organization that would feed people and care for them and provide housing. And I was like, it's the church. It's supposed to be the church. You don't need big welfare programs. The church would take care of this by loving their neighbor. Oh, you lost your job over there? How do, can we feed you? Can we pay your mortgage for a few months? Here, I'll give you a job on, on my tree cutting farm. Here you can... You know, you can muck the goat's pen. I'll throw you a hundred bucks for doing that. Like, that's what community does for each other is they provide opportunities. That's how you live sympathy out. How can I help you with the tools and the gifts that God has given me? How can I be your servant? And so that's the, the ways that we're going to offer our help will differ based on the circumstances. Sometimes it's really just prayer. Sometimes we just need to pray for people who are mistreated, especially those that aren't here. And sometimes it'll be direct sharing of a message of the gospel when that time is right. Um, not that there's ever a wrong time for it, but how, remember what St. Francis of Assisi said, <laughs> preach the gospel, always sometimes use your words. How we, how we tell our story, how we live our life, and then introducing the things that changed our life. That order is important. We, I don't think people standing on street corners with megaphones really make huge impacts in the evangelical world. Um, but if this whole thing doesn't work at the new church, maybe I'll try that. Um, so, and sometimes it's financial need, helping others with our resources. We've all been blessed, especially a lot of us here have been blessed 
to live pretty comfortably. It's, it's, it's a true blessing. So how we're able to steward that and shepherd that with others is really important. No matter how we're supportive, it's always an action. It's not just a thought. Jesus even talks, talks about that. You know, if, uh, maybe it's John talks about it. If, if, you, if your enemy needs a coat, you give it to him. Right? If it's, you're, you're a terrible person if you're like, even if it's not your enemy, you're walking by some guy and he's like, oh, he looks really cold. And then you keep walking on. And you've got a nice coat there that you could have given him, right? You can't just ponder people's life circumstances. We should be driven to a place of trying to help their life circumstances. So what we've seen in these three verses is that we have a requirement to live our Christian love in action. We are called to be a people of action. And we do this by loving those here in this body as our actual brothers and sisters, united by the spiritual bond that Christ has given us through the Holy Spirit. We also do this by being hospitable to strangers. That's our way of loving them in action, providing for them like the bags that we put together. We sympathize with them in their station in life by caring about them, not just feeling bad for them, but even if there's places that we can't change for people, loving them and caring for them is still something. It's something that we can still provide. The same with prisoners. While none of us are physically incarcerated, we have been spiritually incarcerated. So we need to care for those who are mistreated, persecuted, or marginalized. International Justice Mission is an awesome organization that helps the persecuted and those that are still in slavery and unjust prison around the world. They're a really wonderful group. Same with groups like Prison Fellowship, um, groups that are dedicated to going in and teaching classes in prison and bringing the gospel to people. Because we know that the prison system doesn't actually reform anybody, so maybe we should get in there and help a little bit. The bottom line is we're called to be a loving people, and we show this love in actionable ways. So as we, we wind down Hebrews, I'm going to continue to exhort you guys to be people of action. So we get through this week and the next two weeks, it's all going to be actionable things that we can do in helping care for other people. I want us to be people who actively love one another, that show hospitality for strangers, and care for those prisoners and those that are mistreated. Because think hard, if this was actually a Christian world, and everybody was focused on caring for each other's needs. So I meet Garen's needs, Garen meets Melissa's, Melissa's meets Kristen's, Kristen's meets Jared, and so on and around this goes. Everybody's needs actually get met. And your needs get met in a better way too because we're caring for each other. We all love being taken care of and, and love caring for each other. So if we lived in a world where these values were really pushing this out, our needs would be cared for and it would be a much more loving and kind place. And so with that light... We should be putting other people first. Um, in Matthew 20, 16, Jesus says, So the last will be first, and the first will be last. We take a servant's heart. We take a servant's attitude. It's okay to take the last place in line, to let somebody else take the little bit nicer piece of food, or you know, to maybe allow somebody else that thing that you wanted so bad, especially as we come into kind of the materialism of, of the Christmas age. Putting ourselves last actually puts ourselves first because it shows that we're caring about other people's needs. So... Your charge for this week is to strive to be last by putting the love of others first in everything that you do. Let's pray.